Hey guys, I'm Michael from the Honest Youth Pastor, and today we are going to do our third video uh, where we review a sermon and we look at the exegetical work and see how well it, or not well it's done. So we're viewing this video for educational purposes, much like we did the last two. Uh, the first video we did this with was Judas Smith. He had a, a youth online youth service that he did, so we reviewed that one uh, as what I would consider a bad use of exegesis and application. Uh, and then we looked last week at what I said was like an in-between, right? So it was good exegetical work, but it still was able to incorporate story uh, to maybe help that application along a little bit. And today we are going to look at uh, basically just exegetical work, straight exegetical work. Um, nothing else there. Now, uh, we're looking at uh, Alistair Begg, and he does what is considered, uh, or what is called, expository preaching. So you're going to hear a text here in a minute that he's going to read out. And uh, the reason that he doesn't do a lot of background work uh, at all, <laughs> and you'll see that, is because his congregation already knows what's been going on all the way up to this point. Because they've been in this book, uh, preaching through it uh, section by section, verse by verse, and that helps a lot, and that's why I, mean, I would consider expository preaching the way to go almost 99.9% .9 of the time. Uh, because in those cases, you don't have to every week do background in order to keep people caught up on context because they're going to know the idea of what you're already talking about. And when something is mentioned, you can point back to it, uh, but you don't have to explain all of it all the way back because they've already been there with you for the most part if they've been attending consistently. Uh, so we're going to jump right into this. This sermon itself is 40 minutes long. Uh, so this video, like the other ones, is going to be long. So just be prepared for that. Also, one thing I want to tell you before we start it, um, Alistair Begg is not uh, your... Uh, your Stephen Furtick, Judas Smith, Carl Lentz, energetic type of preacher. He's not. Uh, his job, as he sees it, is to preach to the Word of God, teaching and training the people of God. Uh, and now, so he he's just he's simply not gonna get excited, like like woo yeah, like jumping around stuff. There's not gonna be music or lights in the background. It's just not uh, how this church goes. Now that doesn't mean that when you do exegetical preaching that that can't be involved. Uh, I'm just kind of warning you that this is going to be much different than the last two sermons. Um, so you kind of have that in your head already. So enough of me talking. Let's go ahead and jump into it and hear what Alistair has to say. Turn with me and follow along as I read from 1 Samuel and chapter 26. Now the heading in our text is David spares Saul again. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of Jeshimah? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimah. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. 
Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things 
and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Amen. Okay. <laughs> so just a couple things. Some of you guys, maybe you probably, you might have even fast forwarded through that, right? But here's the reason I wanted to not interrupt that at all. So I want you to notice a couple things. Now, this is not necessarily um, exegetical in nature, but I think it speaks a lot to when you cover something exegetically and you're looking at it, right? First of all, he did not apologize at all before he started reading with the classic, well, this, you know, this is a lot of scripture, but just bear with me here. Like he did it. He just said, okay, let's jump in. Let's read it. Partly because uh, he does expository preaching. So that involves you reading the whole text. But two is because it's the word of the Lord, right? It's, it's, it shouldn't be something that you have to apologize for. It shouldn't be something that like you take two main verses of and then you like you, 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 you know, do a monologue on what everything happened up to that point. Like it's there for a reason. Read it like, yeah, it might take a minute. Uh, it's going to, you know, be a little painful. I mean, some, some of you, that's the longest you've ever heard a pastor read from the scripture before. Like, so that's one of those things that I want to note from the get go, right? That took a minute. That took probably about five minutes, four to five minutes. And, uh, for some of you, it was extremely painful. Uh, and it was a little painful for me not to interrupt to, to make this point beforehand, but I want you to note that, right? So when you're looking at something, you're pulling it out exegetically, like we're like Alistair's going to do for the rest of the sermon here. Uh, the reason he reads all of it is so that you get the full breadth of the context of what's happening so that uh, every little detail that's involved here is important. It's not just something, it's not some minuscule thing that just got added. Like uh, it's there for a reason and he's going to speak to almost all of it during this sermon. So I say that because uh, two things. One, a lot of people I don't think preach uh, expositionally through the scripture. Uh, but two, uh, I wanted you to kind of hear like he took his time, he didn't apologize, and he read all of it, um, which to me is just, it's it's great because I don't see that happen a lot anymore um, without stopping and interjecting and stopping and interjecting. He just read it through and now he's going to look at it, the whole breadth of what he just read, and exegetically work through the text to show us, um, well, it's going to dig dig all the richness out of this text within the total storyline of not only the, the Bible, but within um, the book that he's reading through. So let's get back to it. So as we come to the Bible, gracious Father, thank you for the song we've sung. We have pled the help of the Holy Spirit, and we believe now that you will illumine your word to us uh, so that we might be transformed into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to the 26th chapter, you may have found yourself saying, if you've read ahead, but haven't we already read this? And that is because it is remarkably similar to the event that is recorded for us in chapter 24. In chapter 24, Saul has gone into David's camp, and here in chapter 26, David and his uh, nephew Abishai go down into Saul's camp. Some liberal scholars suggest that this is just two attempts at dealing with the same story. But although the chapters are remarkably similar, they are sufficiently different 
to dispense with the idea that we are actually dealing with just two versions of one story. So, under the heading, David spares. So, just quick note there that I think is important. Um, when you're dealing with certain text, right? So, the example he just pulled out, um, it's important to, because, okay, so let me back up a little bit. There's certain times, if you're actually reading along in your Bibles with what you're, the pastor is preaching, there's certain texts um, that will have, like, uh, in, the, in the footnotes, or if you have a commentary Bible, it'll have down in the commentary section. Uh, about, hey, you know, in this manuscript, it looked like this, or in this manuscript, it wasn't there, or those back and forth. And somebody that's, that's, that's trying to work you through the text is going to do a lot like what he just did, which is point out, hey, this is an argument that is commonly made about this or that. In this particular case, he was talking about a couple chapters back and the similarity of events, uh, which sometimes happens in the Old Testament where there are, there's very similar circumstances that happened. Um, but he's, pointing out this one here. I only bring it up because it's one of those things that, again, um, with exegetical preaching, you're looking for, like with correct exegetical preaching, you're looking for uh, a teaching moment, right? Now, again, it doesn't have to be monotone, but um, you're looking for the the teaching aspect of it. This isn't a hoorah, you know, motivational speech when you're opening the word. This is digging through the text saying, hey, this is sort of the, you know, what other people have said about this. This is why, you know, this probably isn't accurate uh, within the totality of what we're looking at and then going on to explain the rest of that. So I just thought it was an important point uh, to point out that, you know, when a pastor is working through a text, uh, it's not just, you know, hey, this is my perspective on it. Sometimes they bring in or oftentimes they'll bring in uh, other, you know, hey, this is an argument against this, but I think that this is why this is important because uh, as the body goes out into the world and starts to uh, implement uh, what we've learned, there, I think sometimes we're ignorant of the fact that a lot of people outside of the church, atheists, agnostics, other religions, sometimes know more about the Bible than we do. So um, these sort of teaching moments uh, give the pastor an opportunity to, you know, teach the people that, hey, this is something that people have said, so just be aware of it, uh, and then getting back to the actual text. So, it's just a small point. Saul again. Um, we could have, I suppose, had as a heading, play it against Saul, uh, that misquote from Casablanca, because in many ways we are going down the same pathway. And despite the way things ended in chapter 24, remember, in the cave in Engedi, and the affirmations that were made there, may the Lord reward you with all good for what you have done this day, and uh, that very magnanimous response of Saul to David, it would seem when we got to the end of chapter 24 that everything was now resolved, when in actual fact we turn to 26 and we realize that the hostility of Saul is as strong as ever, and that as the events unfold once again, David finds himself in a position to be able to make a grab for that which only God is to give. The real question is, because we had chapter 25 in between, has David learned anything uh, from this incident involving Nabal? Has it changed his thinking? the fact that he's been through this before? Does it make it easier for him to handle? Well, we've already seen that success in chapter 24 uh, gave way to his wrongdoing 
or his potential disaster in 25. And if your Bible is open like mine, and you can look down to the opening verse of chapter 27, to which we'll come next time, all being well, you can see how quickly victory, success, uh, gives way to fear and, in turn, to failure. It's important that we don't lose sight of the foundational block. So, a couple things um, just to note here, right? Um, one, uh, this video is going to take a little bit more of you to stick along here just because of the nature of how long he takes to, 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 to work this through. But again, that's exegetical preaching, which is why a lot of people don't do it, because it takes a long time and it's not exciting, right? Uh, initially, it's not like, uh, like get your blood pumping kind of thing. Two, um, he does a bit here, and he's about done, uh, give some background uh, on the, the text before to kind of like to summarize before we get into it. I said at the beginning of the video, he doesn't do a lot of that, um, which I wouldn't consider this a lot. He's just catching the people up that maybe didn't catch the last sermon, like you or I. Uh, we didn't catch the last couple sermons, so maybe we did miss something. Uh, but he's not just catching us up. He's explaining why now in the text that we read that they're going to be acting the way they do, right? So it's, it, it's exegetical work, simply put, is really, uh, let's say you're sitting watching a movie and your friend comes in midway and says, hey, what's going on? That's exegetical work. You're catching your friend up on what is happening that they've missed. Because if they walk in, for example, halfway through uh, The Lord of the Rings, um, they're not going to know who the people are or why they're in the situation they're in. And this is much like what you walk into uh, within this text. So his congregation has been going through this book for a while. You're just coming into it. So you're the friend walking into the room going, hey, who are these people? And he's explaining it to you. So again, I think this, uh, we're not used to uh, this nature of preaching uh, because of the society we live in, but uh, it's, it's an unraveling of what's going on. And we're going to see toward the end of this sermon, there is application still in exegetical work, but it's done after the unpacking and digging and uh, the work, really, the Bible study work of digging out from the text. So just, I'm sure you, you were catching that there, uh, but just so that you, this video remains engaging, that you can see what he's doing is that he's he's unpacking what's happened previously to kind of get our minds in the right spot uh, for what is happening now, the text we just read all the way through. Upon which we're building in this series. Remember, we have uh, made sure that we understand what is meant by the phrase that David was a man after God's own heart, that that was not a statement about the place that uh, uh, God had in David's heart, but rather it was the place that uh, David had in God's heart, and that God has determined that he is his anointed and he will reign on his throne. But it would seem that the journey to the throne is certainly no cakewalk, and that there are episodes in his life, more still to come, where it becomes very obvious to us as readers that although he is the king, he is only a shadow of the one to whom he points. All the way through the narrative of the Old Testament, when we see the, the prophet emerging, when we see uh, the, the king emerging, when we see the priesthood unfolding, they are all pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Now, in the first five verses, uh, this scene is set for us. We need delay on it. Uh, the Ziphites, true to form, we saw them back in chapter 23. Uh, the informers, uh, they have some interest in currying favor uh, with Saul. And so, as before, they come to Saul, and they tell, them, tell him that they know uh, where David is. It's quite interesting that uh, it immediately says, on the basis of this information, that Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, and he took with him his 3,000 men. Well, why is it interesting? Well, because again, at the end of 24, he seemed to be somewhat reconciled to the circumstances. He knows that now that David is actually going to be the One thing here, and this video will obviously come out before the podcast does, but on the Babylon Pastors podcast that I do with my friend Rob, uh, we actually do an episode on exegetical work. Um, and one of the things we point out is what, what Alistair just did. So, for example, he says, hey, these people did this, and it's very interesting that after they do this, Saul does this because of this, right? So all of that to say, um, the idea here is that this isn't just Alistair's job or your pastor's job to do. Like, not, It's not just their job to open the Scripture and to pull things out. Uh, for you, right? So the idea is, and he's assumed it already. I mean, I didn't comment on it when he said it, but he said that, hey, if you have your Bibles open with me and are following along as well, you'll see. The idea here is that they have their Bibles in front of them, either on their devices or a physical Bible, and they're in them reading along with him. Um, the idea also is that that there are their minds are working in such a way that they also are picking up on the things such as he just picked up on. Um, now again, you might say, well, what's the purpose of me doing that if he's already going to do it? Like I could just sit at home and exe do exegesis on the text myself and learn just as much as I would from him. Well, that's a whole different conversation, but the idea is here is that the pastor is corporately teaching the body a particular text that week so that the body together can understand, grow, and apply. Uh, but you're also supposed to be in your by yourself studying God's Word, uh, being in it. The idea is, of course, that you're not going to be probably in the same place your pastor preaches. You're uh, not. You're going to be in a different book or a psalm or a proverb or the gospel or an epistle or somewhere else that your pastor's not going to cover. And you, frankly, simply can't get enough of the Word of God. And uh, it's good to also be in it yourself because you're going to be doing contemplation and prayer on your, by yourself, whereas also as the body, you are learning together to apply together. But that's a whole different story. What I want you to understand is what he just did is a part of exegetical work, saying, hey, this happened. It's sort of odd. It's something you note out of Scripture, and you say, uh, this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. And it helps you understand and unravel the gospel within the context. Now, you've already noticed, but continue to listen. He's not making any, it, like in our lives, or this correlates a lot to what we're doing, or this applies directly to us right now. Like He's not making those correlations because when you do exegetical work, it's not about making correlations. There is application, and we're going to see him do a really good job of applying this whole story here later on in the sermon. Um, but that's not what digging through the text initially to teach it is about. Uh, it's to show what God has done or uh, has done in uh, his people in the past over the overarching narrative of the gospel, and then how that now, us as believers, that also applies or we can apply those sort of situations and things. So um, I just want you to see that to, to, to 
kind of have your ears listening for that a bit of, uh, you know, this happened, so this happened, and then this happened, and that's very interesting. It's things you take notes of. But apparently this was all it took to coax him back into this same evil pursuit. He can't restrain his impulse uh, to destroy his rival, uh, because jealousy is a powerful force. And when they come and they say, we know where David is, they are appealing to this latent hostility in him. And it only takes a little spark, and once again, there he goes. Remember what James says, uh, where you find jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Now, as you look at that little scene setting in the first five verses, you will notice that for him to amass his troops again, the 3,000, his movements uh, could not then be disguised. And I think that's the significance of what we're told, that although they told uh, Saul that he would find David here, David actually was in the wilderness. David was in a position to see this large force emerging. He then sends his men, verse 4, on a reconnaissance mission to confirm the fact that this is none other than Saul, and clearly he's back up to his old tricks. That's the first five verses. Then in verses uh, 6 and following, we discover that the camp of Saul is infiltrated. You remember in Ecclesiastes, in a passage that is often used in a wedding service, uh, two are better than— I know this is just pointing out the obvious, but I, I just want you to see it, and that's why I'm pointing it out, is that he is walking through the text. Now, this is my concern this far in the video, right? We're about 25 minutes in. Uh, my concern is that uh, because of the nature of this video, some people won't get this far, okay? Uh, by nature of the video, I mean this isn't— uh, a controversial pastor that everybody loves, you know, the, this isn't uh, uh, a like uh, get him hoorah kind of sermon. And some people honestly probably checked out about 10 minutes ago because they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's, oh, he's so monotone. This is so long. This is so boring. Like, that's my concern. The reason we're looking at the sermon, though, is for this, this exactly what he's doing. Uh, exegetical work, though it doesn't always look like this, like I said last video, I think that that was like a nice medium. Uh, but exegetical work and uh, preaching through expository, uh, using expository preaching, uh, starts pulling out all of these details, right? Uh, I, for example, just to give you an example, am not like a book reader, uh, but my wife and my daughter both are. And the details is where like everything is. That's where they can see what's happening. They can envision the characters. They can see, you know, um, the, everything being painted as this big picture uh, so to, just to enrich the story. And expository preaching does just that. This is what Alistair's doing. He's walking through uh, the text, and that's why he's walking through chunk by chunk, verse by verse, saying, you know, this is what it would have looked like. He wouldn't have been able to hide 3,000 people moving at once. David was in the wilderness. He would have seen it coming. Like, he knows what's happening. Like, he's painting a picture for you of this 
text so you can see this isn't just so at the beginning like i mentioned when we read through it some people are like oh my gosh please just shoot me like it took forever for you to get through that like it was excruciating for you but the reason he does that is so that you can see the breadth of the text and then here for example when he's walking through chunk by chunk he's unpacking it and he's saying look look at you know all of these things are set up and this is what these characters are going through and this is what they're thinking uh to bring out everything that's here because most of us, and this is why I think that this is, you know, ex expositional, I'm sorry, expository preaching is good, uh, is because it, it takes a text that we read at the beginning that some people clicked off right then. Um, but it takes that text that we would usually read over and be like, oh my gosh, thank goodness we are done for the day. Check Bible reading complete, close the Bible, put it up. And it, it unpacks it into this beautiful story uh, of what, you know, the, the beauty of what is happening here. Um, so anyway, I'm just, I, I, I hope that you see that, um, that what he's doing, he's unpacking this for us so that we can see the, the details, right? So 3,000 people moving, just seeing that in your head going, wow, yeah, you couldn't hide that movement in the desert. That many people walking, feet on the ground, sand in the air. Um, you can't hide that kind of thing. So anyway, that's, he's unpacking it for us so that we can see the full picture. Um, so that, right, so that when we get to the end, the application is that much more real. But I don't want to skip that far ahead. So let's keep going. One, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, the other one can pick him up. And so David decides he's going to go down into the camp, but he's not just going to do it by himself. And so we're told that opportunity knocks for this man, uh, Ahimelech the Hittite. And um, if you've never heard of him before, uh, relax, because you will never hear of him again. And this is his only visit into the Bible. He's one of the band of disaffected adventure seekers, these freebooters and wanderers that make up this uh, band of followers of David himself. Uh, we would have known more about, more about him if he had chosen to accept the invitation. But as it falls, uh, we discover that Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, whom we will meet again, is one of David's nephews, and he volunteers for the opportunity. They're going to make a nighttime visit. If you know your Bible well enough, you will read this, and you will say, this has hints of another nighttime visit uh, in the previous book, um, or in, in the record, in, not in Ruth, but in Judges. Uh, where you will recall that Gideon and his servant Pura go down into the camp of the Midianites during the night in the assurance that the Lord has given the camp into their hands. I leave you to read that story on your own. It's in Judges chapter 7. And we know what happened there. So this is the third time he's done this, though obviously he expanded a bit this third time. But he's referenced Scripture throughout. So he talked about James— uh, then he made other references uh, to Old Testament passages I, that I can't remember, but he, I know he made them about the two is better than one. And then he makes this reference that he encourages people then to read. Here's, here's what I want you to see, is that he's encouraging people to be in their words so that by the time you get to, and again, here, going back to my example of my wife and my daughter loving to read books, right? Uh, they usually read like trilogies or like, uh, you know, all these series of books. 
And whenever something happens in book four, their minds automatically go back to book one or two or, you know, right? So there's things that they're recalling going, oh yeah, back when so-and-so said this to this person, that's what they meant back here. And we're just figuring out about it now, right? So this is a lot what what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, if, you're, if you read through your Bible, right, if you're in the word, um, you're going to be like, oh, this is a lot like, like what's happening now is a lot like what happened to Gideon. Um, and you're going to be making those connections. And he, the idea here, and I hope you see it, is that his assumption is that you're going to be in the Bible, right? You're going to be reading through the word, that you're going to be putting that time in. Like I said before, on your own, looking into the Bible and uh, doing your own Bible study and work. For the purpose of, as you get to someplace else, or when you're talking to somebody else about the Bible, or when a question comes up, it's not your opinion, right? Uh, whenever you, you say something, you can go, yeah, well, back in such and such a passage, a very similar thing happened. And this was what occurred here. And I think it could be helpful to you now because da, 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 right? So his assumption here is that his people, one, he wants to show that the word connects to the word. Like there's always application across the Bible to other Bible passages. Uh, but more importantly, that if they're in the Bible, they start making these connections to, oh, yeah, this similar thing happened back here. or This similar thing happened back here um, so that they can see those connections. And I think that's important because a lot of the time um, in some churches, that's not encouraged. Um, it's not encouraged from the pulpit. It's not encouraged really in any other part of the ministry. It's the pastor preaches, you listen, and then you do what he says. Uh, here, uh, not in this particular sermon, but in another sermon that I was considering of Alistair's to do, uh, he said, uh, you know, <laughs> follow uh, follow along with me in your Bible, which I assure, I'm assured you have. Like He's assuming that they're reading along with him and that they're double-checking him um, on what he says. So all of that to say, um, he's assuming his people are going to be in the Word so that they know who Gideon is, that they know the story that's happened, and they can make those connections on similarities. We also know what had already happened in chapter 24 here, when David had gone into the cave. You remember? I hope you do. Uh, that he found uh, Saul, as it were, in the bathroom. And now we come into chapter 26, and he's going to find him in the bedroom. And it's an amazing picture here, an understandable picture. They went down to do this reconnaissance because they had already identified where the encampment was and also where Saul could be found within that encampment. And the picture that is given us here is a sort of tranquil picture, isn't it? Verse 7, So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner his commander, and the army lay around him. We have these amazing pictures of Saul and his spear. It keeps coming back as a picture of his uh, supposed strength. You remember back in chapter 22 and verse 6, uh, there Saul is sitting under the tamarisk tree, and the spear is in his hand. Well, here he is sleeping with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and he doesn't realize how close he is to having the spear being stuck in his head rather than stuck in the ground. David is very familiar with his spear because we know that he dodged it on a couple of occasions. And as soon as Abishai comes on this— So 
again as a note because the whole purpose of doing this is not for you to watch me watch a sermon with you it's to pull out and educate so i'm not jumped in as much of this sermon as i have in the previous videos because there's not a lot to there's no real correction to occur there's just things that i want you to see um what i hope you noted which is why I waited a minute, but I didn't want to get too far into it, is that he brings up the importance of the spear in the narrative, not only in the text that we're reading, but in the text that uh, he's previously went through with his congregation, uh, noting that this spear is, uh, like he said, it's the uh, image of, of Saul's power, and that this power has been, like the spear has been present throughout the narrative of, of David and Saul, and it's 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 here as well it's presented here as well and it's something that is a symbol of power not only to us as the reader like going through it uh, the story being told to us but more importantly in the actual narrative that's occurring that's being written about it is a a symbol of power and Saul's reign and his ability uh, to command armies and all those sorts of things and what we're going to see, and as you, I mean, if you remember when Alistair read through the scripture, uh, they're going to take this spear, which is like an example of taking his power a little bit to show that, hey, we were there. Um, so I just want you to note that, again, exegetical preaching involves digging out the small details and pointing them out. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, hey, this spear that we're talking about, in case you don't remember, like it was, it's been present throughout all of this story has been thrown at David. He's aware of it. It's been shown with Saul when he's places holding it as a representation of power. So um, exegetical preaching is, again, pointing to those things that are saying, hey, this was here. And it's, it's, it's taking note of those so that it draws attention to those sorts of things that are important to what's happening in, in this case, the narrative to pull those out. Um, to show that they're important. They're not, again, it's not just some minuscule detail that's there uh, because, you know, who, you know, it just needed to be thrown in. It's there for a reason, and we need to pay attention to it because of what actually happens in the story. He reacts in a very similar way to what the people had said in 24. Remember when uh, Saul had come into the cave and David's followers said, oh, this is the Lord's doing. It's obvious uh, he has been brought in here so that you can bump him off. Well, on this occasion, Abishai takes it in a different direction. He doesn't suggest to Saul that he does it, but rather that he will do it himself. Verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand this day, so let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. It won't take me two shots to deal with this. Now, I wonder if there was a pause between his volunteering and David's responding in verse 9. Did he pause for a moment and begin to say to himself, well, you know, there is some value in this. After all, he has come against me again with a massive force. He had suggested to me that he wasn't going to do this anymore. He might have said, you know, it can't be coincidence that we found his camp. And then he would say to himself, it is peculiar, at least, that he is lying here apparently comatose. And after all, I'm the one anointed to be the king. Well, perhaps we should seize this moment. It would be surprising if these thoughts were not somewhere in his thinking. All right, so I want to point out, because when uh, I listened to this the first time, 
uh, this really, this kind of like piqued my interest a bit. I think oftentimes, and this is why, I think oftentimes when people think of uh, exegetical preaching or expository preaching, you think of like preaching straight through. Now, not always, but I think that's why it's got kind of a negative rap that it's like you can't interject anything into it at all. Uh, no stories, no laughing, no fun, which is why I did the previous video to show that that can be mixed together uh, if done well. Uh, here, what we see is Alistair bringing out a point that, uh, again, I, I think is really it's really well done because he's not just interjecting it uh, for humor's sake. He doesn't make a stand-up comedy routine out of it like I would see done in other people that were preaching. He brings it out as a valid point based on not his own ideas, but based on his reading of the text before. Um, so he's saying, hey, this has happened to David before. Um, it probably came across his mind. In fact, I paused it right when he was saying it'd be peculiar if he didn't think about it. Um, but this has happened to him before. It probably came across David's mind that maybe this I can kill him because surely this wouldn't happen twice. Like he brings it up as a valid point as the reader of if you were reading straight through, right, you would say, hey, again, pointing back to what I said, like you're picking up this happened before this connects to this. This seems similar. If you had been reading through this text, your thought would be. Wow, he gets another opportunity to do this. Maybe God does want him to do this. Like, why else would he put in there? And that's that's what Alistair is drawing out. This idea that it probably came, even though we don't have any text of it, and it is just conjecture, um, it probably did come across David's mind to say, mm, I don't, like, can it really happen twice and God not want me to kill him? Um, but he's working it out again, not as some theory or idea, but as saying, "Hey, this is what the this is what we've seen up to the text thus far," um, and it would be logical for David to say, "Hmm, this might be a thing." Now, again, I want you to know, and he'll say it here in a minute, uh, or say something similar here in a minute, that you know, it's that's just an idea, but it would be weird if he didn't think about that. But ultimately, we know that actually he didn't do it. Uh, so let's, I just want to point that out that I think that oftentimes we go, oh, no, you can't don't say that. And I think there is a line sometimes where uh, you can make conjecture that is far outside of what is even logical. Um, but whereas Alistair does it well here because he stays within the confines of Scripture, the narrative we've already read up to. Uh, and he uses what we know to say, well, this is this is a probable idea. Uh, and then he puts it in here. So let's move on. But you will notice, verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Notice and notice carefully. What determines his response to the suggestion of Abishai is not his circumstances, which are set up to do just such a deed, but rather his conviction. His conviction. He is a man of conviction. Think Daniel. Think Joseph. Think Eric Little. Do not destroy him. It is wrong. It is wrong. He doesn't say, don't destroy him, because I still have a forlorn hope <clears throat> that he might change and become a better person. No. Do not destroy him. You see, here's, here's a, a matter that ought to be apparent to us. Sometimes, in a, in a trivial way, when temptation comes, let's say that you're trying your best not to eat 
uh, poorly. And you've gone out, and you've had a magnificent meal at a friend's house, and they come around with the most enticing dessert you've ever seen in your entire life. But out of a deep sense of conviction, you say, oh, no, no, um, it, it would be wrong for me to do this in light of what I'm doing. And then you sit back in your chair, and you feel smug as, as other people succumb to the temptation. And then the almost inevitable happens. The hostess comes again and says, will you not change your mind? And in that moment, in the full flush of the success of having said no once, the temptation is even greater, it seems to me, to say yes the second time. In other words, I reward myself for having got through the first five minutes. Why don't I just succumb in the next five? Now, you see, that could have happened here easily. David said to himself, well, I was successful in 24. So Now, I want you to see something that um, is almost exactly opposite of what you would see in a quote-unquote typical sermon. So instead of reading ourselves into the text, Alistair takes a situation we know and helps us better understand what's happening in the text. So he's not placing us in the text saying, hey, this is, you know, we, it, you know, we, we have opportunities all the time in, you know, God sets us up, but our character, you need to worry about your character, not your situation. That's not what he says. He's, he uses an example of, you know, dieting and cake and, you know, saying no to that to help us emotionally understand the state that David is in. So we're understanding David's state of mind right now through this example, not saying, oh yeah, this is just like our situation. So I want you to see how, how absolutely opposite that is from what you from eisegesis, right? So we've talked about eisegesis before, especially in the first video we did um, uh, on the whole sermon review series. So the idea of eisegesis is you would read yourself into this text saying, I'm just like David. I have opportunities sometime, but I'm not going to take those opportunities because God's got a bigger plan for me and I, my character matters, right? Uh, which could be application here, but that's reading yourself into the text saying, I'm just like David. God gives me opportunities to do or do not do the right thing, but my character is more important than this situation. That's not what Alistair says. He says, hey, you know how sometimes you're dieting, somebody comes around with a cake and you say no, and then they come around again and you're like, ah, I did really good, so I'm going to take it anyway. He says, so that feeling you have of smugness and, you know, I did something important. He said, Think about how David was feeling in this situation. So I, I hope you see how absolutely opposite that is. And so when we're talking about eisegesis versus exegesis, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, that's a perfect example, reading yourself into the text or understanding what the narrative, the, the, the person in the text is actually going through to better understand what's happening in the narrative. So uh, I hope you see that because that is, that is wholly different. Um, than what you normally would hear on a sermon, probably, in any given church on this particular text. So let's keep going. I perhaps could be free now in chapter 26. But no, this isn't situational ethics. This isn't. He said, no, it's wrong to do. And furthermore, notice, he says, as the Lord lives, God can be trusted to deal with Saul. Now, we ask the question, do you think he learned anything from the incident with Nabal? Yes, I think he did. Because remember, God deals with Nabal without uh, the intervention of David. You remember that he was struck and he died, that he became stone dead when he was uh, under the 
um, when he received the information that came from Abigail, his wife. And so now, applying the same logic, David says, uh, here's what may well happen. There's a number of ways in which God may choose to take him out. He may so just real quick, I know I, I'm, I'm interrupting more than I have been, but there you go. Just keep you awake a little bit. Uh, so this is, I want you to see, he, he's pointing back to, again, he's assuming that you understand the whole narrative. And this is why, I mean, so we just talked about eisegesis versus exegesis. This is why exegetical preaching is so much better than doing it wrong. Um, because it's showing you how the narrative of Scripture ties together. Uh, how these people that we've heard of before, like David, how they're thinking in this part of their life, what they're going through, what God is doing uh, in and through them during this time that we read. Because oftentimes people read the Old Testament, and they're so disconnected from it, they don't understand it. Um, it's, it's boring for some people. Uh, but exegetical preaching, like what he's doing here, I mean, he's pointing back to a couple sermons ago when he preached on uh, on this. And he's saying, hey, do you remember that? That's going to be fresh in David's mind. Um, which is, again, I think a really good point for expository preaching, but that's not what we're talking about. But I want you to see exegetically, he's, he's pulling it out and fully focusing your eyes on what's going on with David right now, not making you David or any other character in the story. Uh, he's saying, look at what's, what's unfolding here in David's head and what's unfolded prior in David's life that's led him to this point. Strike him. That's along the lines of what happened to Nabal. He may die of natural causes, that is, or his day will come to die, or he may go down into the battle and perish. Well, of course, that was exactly what was going to happen. But notice verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. We are not Abishai going to take his life. But what we are going to take, we're going to take his spear, and we're going to take his water jar. <laughs> now, you can imagine Abishai thinking, goodness me, if I'd known that was the only reason I was coming down here, just to pick up the spear and the water jar, I might have let Ahimelech the Hittite go in my place. I thought it was going to be far more fun than this. Well, what they were doing was they were removing the instrument that spoke of his power or of his aggression, and they were removing the water jar, which was a means of his sustenance. And so here, again, I know this seems—some of you, this seems like a minor detail. It is not a minor detail. He's pointing out here, again, back to the spear, talking about why we're taking the spear— why they're taking this spear, also why they're taking the water, and the idea of why these two things are important, right? So if you're just reading through this, uh, first off, on your own personal Bible study, you may miss those two things, or you may say, I wonder why they're taking those things. But again, Bible study is going to, you know, as you look into the Word as far as what, what these two things are, why he needs the water, why he needs the spear, you're going to see that they're taking things for a reason. And you know that because we've already read through the entire text at the beginning of the sermon here. But they're taking these things for a reason. Secondly, if this is a sermon that's preached in most churches today, what you might hear is that, you know, the spear and the water 
uh, ambiguous things in our life are then attributed to the spear and the water, right? Whereas that's not the case, and this is why exegetical, I mean, I wanted to show you a good example of exegetical preaching, is that he's saying, hey, this is what for David and Saul and the people of this camp and the people reading it are going to understand that the spear means power, the water needs means substance. That's why he's taking these things, and we're going to see the impact of him taking these things here in a moment. So, again, you may already know this, but if not, and you're looking to learn more about why exegetical preaching is important or how to exegete a text, those should be flags for you as you read across them and saying, oh, that's why that's important. Not only today do uh, we have a glass of water by our bed once we're of a certain vintage, but they had a water jar in those days too. So, they what, go and take the spear that it is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. And then notice verse 12 says, so David took the spear and the jar of water. Well, well I wonder what happened. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe he says, now you go and get the spear and the jar of water. And they say, no, no, wait a minute. Let me take them. I, I, I don't, I'm worried about what you might do if you get a hold of that spear, given your earlier request. So Abishai doesn't protest. He doesn't ask what David plans to do with the two articles. And then we discover why it is that they've been able to go through this whole exercise, and no one saw, no one knew, no one woke up. Because they were all asleep. I get that, but that is some kind of sleep. Yes, but it was a special kind of sleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. There's no discovery that ever comes in the world that is unknown to God. He was a master of anesthetics long before we discovered the capacity for anesthesia. The deep sleep is not something new that pops up here. Remember, it was used by God in the case of Adam when one of his ribs was removed in the creation of Eve. It was used in that great encounter concerning those smoking pots with Abram in Genesis 15. And it is used as an expression of judgment in Isaiah the prophet when in chapter uh, 29—and I hope it's 29 because I'm going there— right now. And in 29, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. Here we go. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. The deep sleep that makes Saul vulnerable is the sleep that keeps David safe. If God before— so I want you to see something here, right? Again, key flag that should go up exegetically if you're looking through the text or as you're listening to pastors preach is that he, he points to the fact that, hey, he was able to do this. And it seems like, well, how, how in the world did they get into the camp without waking anybody up and they're on their way out without waking anybody up? And he points to a very important part of the text. It says God had brought on a deep sleep. And then people go, oh, well, that's convenient that that happened during that time. So, Alistair, understanding that that's going to be a question like, really, that's that's the answer for why they were able to get in and out points back to time and time again where God has used this same 
tactic in order to accomplish other things, showing again not only that uh, that that's what happened in this particular situation with David and Saul, but he's God's done it before. Because why? Because God is over everything. God can do anything whenever He wants to accomplish accomplish His purpose and plan. And Alistair does this to show that yeah, this is a totally reasonable explanation. He God's done it before. But the reason he knows that is because he's in the word. The reason he was able to pull up the text he did, even though he's a little, he's a little concerned he's in the wrong spot, is because he's read that before. He's, he knows it's there, which is, again, another case for why we should be in our Bible. So we can say, oh, that's very similar to this part, or that's very similar to that part, right? And be able to pull it up. Because it's not just a coincidence, a very convenient coincidence that this happened. Rather, it's God's done this before, and if we're in his word, we're going to understand, or if we're listening to a pastor that's actually teaching and uh, using exegetical teaching to teach us the scripture, he's going to say, hey, you know, I know this sounds really convenient, but let me show you the other places that this has also happened. So that should be a, a flag that goes up when we're listening to go, oh, wow, okay, yeah, God, not only is he powerful and over everything, like this isn't the first time he's done this. Um, and then we can point to the places that he's done that before. So. Let's get back into it. Who can be against us? Now, in verses 13 to 16, we have this little dialogue. And incidentally, as we go through this narrative, when, when we're reading the descriptive passages, we're waiting, as it were, for these uh, conversations to give to us much of the understanding of what's taking place. And we have that here. Abner fails. Abner's failure is a failure to do what, as a commander, he should be doing. And so David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. This was not simply social distancing. This was in order to protect himself. And so, once he's in position—and remember, this has taken place under darkness. Everybody is asleep. So David is actually providing the alarm clock, if you like. He's providing the wake-up call on this particular morning. He's far enough away to be safe, and he's close enough in order to be heard. And so he calls out to the sleeping army, and he names Abner, who somehow or another looks like the stronger party in this whole encounter. Hey, Abner, how long do I have to stand here shouting before you wake up and answer me? Abner's response is somewhat defiant, a little, a little like, uh, remember, Nabal's response back in chapter 25. Who does David think he is asking for this stuff? Abner's response is pretty similar. Again, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner text. said, well, who are you who calls to the king? You think you can just come up here in the early hours of the morning and shout like this? David doesn't take it on as a challenge. Instead, he says to him, But I thought you were the main man, Abner. And if you are the main man, Abner, and if your job is to do what you're supposed to do, then you've failed at your job. And we won't delay on this, but in a matter of a few sentences, he reduces Abner to silence. When Abner was asleep, he couldn't hear. And now that he's awake, he can't even speak. Now, David, in his conversation, has given Saul his place. He's referred to him as the Lord your king, the king your lord, in verse 15. 
There's nothing dismissive about his approach here. Why didn't you keep watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. So he's taking Abner seriously. He's acknowledged the place of Saul, and yet at the same time, he has masterfully ridiculed him. Okay, so I hope you, what, what he's saying, I hope you understand why he's saying it and the importance of picking those things up as we read through the text, right? I mean, what he just covered was very few verses, but there was so much in there. It was the acknowledgement of Saul as the king. It was the acknowledgement of Abner, uh, the fact that he was supposed to guard Saul, and he did a horrible job of it. And David essentially trash-talking him uh, about how he felt at his job, right? So he, Alistair's bringing out all of this uh, all of this reality in the text that I think sometimes we would miss. Especially, I think, the thing we would miss is whenever David calls him the Lord your king— in the sense of he's acknowledging David's or he's acknowledging Saul as the anointed king uh, of God right now, that he is he is the king, that he uh, he is the ruler over the people. So uh, it's one of those things that, again, and I've said it before, I don't know on one of these videos, but I know I've said it while uh, I've done sermons before, which is essentially that there's lots of times we read over the text like we read it because we feel like we have to read it. Right. Uh, but we read it and then we miss the important parts of it unless we are diligently sitting down to say, hey, what can I what can I learn from this? What details would I have just skimmed over if not looking for them? Um, and that's one of them. Right. So the things that he's pointing out here are flags that go up in our head. And go, oh, wow. Yeah. So even this conversation that does not seem important. Right. Uh, is vitally important to the overall overall narrative of even the small section of scripture that we're reading here. And I hope you see that because oftentimes, especially within modern day preaching, the idea is that if we can't make it about us or if it doesn't directly to apply to us, then it's not super important. Uh, and we'll monologue over it to the verses that seem like we can use them. Whereas here, the idea, again, this is why exegetical preaching is so important. Even the smallest detail matters, like I've said previously already in this video. Um, there's things that we like to read over, skip over, don't notice, that are important to the narrative and the conversation, in this case, going on within the narrative. Um, so I, I just hope you see those, or starting to see maybe this far into the video why they're important and why they matter. Um, and then let's get on to the last little bit of this video. Or this and I think... If you read verse 16 like this, it will come across. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you've not kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed. And by the way, you might want to look at what I've got here. <laughs> and, he, and he holds up across from the other side of the hill. He holds up the sword, and he holds the water jar. The very, the very things that were right at the head of Saul, and Abner's supposed to be there to protect him. You've been completely uncovered. And so is Saul. Well, now we get to Saul. Wakey, wakey. Saul recognized David's voice. What is all this hullabaloo, he says to himself, as he begins to stir in the morning hour? And his inquiry is, this is his inquiry before, is this your voice, my son David? I can't help but think there's something kind of pathetic about Saul in this circumstance. Abner is the one who should be there. He's not there. Now Saul, dreamily, seeing into the darkness, hearing the voice. And David says, well, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And then he has these questions for him. Why 
Do you pursue me? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Why do you pursue me? What have I done? And what evil is on my hands? He's guiltless. He's more guiltless than Saul knows in this incident, because Saul has been asleep when this drama has unfolded. David, when Jonathan spoke in his defense, was pronounced guiltless back in chapter 19. And his question here is a fair question. Help me figure this out, he says. If what has happened here is because the Lord has stirred you up against me, then may we come to him, and he will accept an offering. But if it is men, then the men who have done this should be cursed before the Lord, because look at what they've done. They've driven me out this day. I'd have no share in the heritage of the Lord. And essentially what they're saying to me is, go and serve other gods. Uh, we can't jump forward to chapter 27, but it's almost prophetic, as we will see when we arrive there. And so he says, here's my deal. Don't let my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. The same old, same old. We've had this conversation before, Saul. Power is on your side. It was 3,000 to 600, and then it was 3,000 to, to 2. And I represent as much of a threat as a flea or as a partridge that calls out in the mountains. Now, he's given two alternative explanations for the actions of Saul. Just a real quick point here that I want to make sure we point out, and that is that, uh, as I said before, like no little detail goes unnoticed. Like it's there for a reason. And though we might not understand the partridge calling out in the wilderness, the flea reference we get probably is that uh, he's basically saying, I'm as insignificant as like a little itty bitty flea. Like that's, you've sent out all these people for me. And again, it's something we could read over, but it's something that as he's doing this exegetically, pulling it out of the text, showing that, you know, what, what David's actually trying to tell, tell Saul, like, you're going a little overboard on this situation. So then he, uh, he's about to explain how, uh, well, let's just get into it. Sorry. This is expert diplomacy here, you see, on the part of David. Expert, expert. He says, if it is God who's responsible, or if it is men who are responsible, then let's, let's settle the matter. But he leaves it up to Saul to acknowledge that Saul is the problem. And you have that in 21 to the end. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Down in the same verse, I have acted foolishly. I have made a great mistake. I have sinned. I have acted foolishly. Now, when Saul says that, it would be virtually impossible for him not to hear the words of Samuel ringing in his ears back in chapter 13, when Samuel says to him, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. For if you had, then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. So I want you to see, again, I know that I've pointed this out quite a bit already in this sermon, but I want you to see 
how continual how continuously this is done so you can see the importance of it and why it's done right so he's calling back to something that uh, he's already preached through but if we were to read straight through or be reading through this narrative we would uh we have we would have already read and we would have already familiarized ourselves with and hopefully remember like we've talked about before when you're reading through a series of books you go oh yeah back in book two that's now affecting this situation in book four um, it's the same kind of idea here as we're looking exegetically at this narrative that it's, oh yeah, this point isn't, is important because this means this is how Saul is feeling. Even if he doesn't in this moment, remember it, this was said to him. So for us as the reader or the listener to this story, uh, we go, oh yeah, wow. Okay. And we make that connection. This is basic exegetical work right this is pulling out of the text things that have happened that are making the narrative get driven forward and help us to understand the fuller idea of what's going on so i know i've i've stopped the video a number of times for things like this but i want you to see that that's something to look for something that when you're doing bible study you do um so you're familiar with it and and you know that um it's something that's that should be done right and I remember when we studied that in 13, somebody came to me afterwards and said, you know, how can that possibly be? If he had done this, then that. I said, let the story unfold. It will become let apparent. the story unfold. And so this confession on the part of Saul comes with an invitation. I've done this. I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Oh, are you going to buy this line, David? And Ralph Davis remarks, just because Saul has been a fool, there is no reason for David to be one. And David essentially says, I'm not coming back. But if you send one of your young men, you can have your spear back. Here is the spear, O king. Here is the spear, O king. With a with a phrase, he drives home the point. He knew that Saul had twice used this spear to try and pin him to the wall. He has taken that spear from the head of Saul when he could have used it to have it driven into Saul's head, and he is now offering ignominiously for Saul to dispatch one of his young men to come back and pick up the spear and take it there. And then in verses 23 to 25, you have... Okay, so he's about to end uh, in the sermon here. But um, again, calling back to the spear, like we talked about earlier, uh, it's been referred to. It's a dominant uh, part of the narrative as far as what it means. And, and, he, and he, the reason he just worked that out there is to connect those dots to us, for us to see what the character of David, the character of Saul, what's happened within this narrative, drawing out all of the ideas within the narrative so that we can see, you know, where both of these men are, their, you know, their characters of how uh, they've developed, how they're feeling, uh, kind of the situation they're currently in for the purpose of, uh, and I don't want to run it here, but for, for a distinct purpose. And we'll see why here in just a second. Summation by David. So you have the failure of Abner, if you weren't following me. You have the, the setting of the scene, and uh, you have the infiltration of the camp. You have the failure of Abner, and you have the uh, dialogue uh, with Saul, his confession, 
and then these concluding words. The Lord rewards, says David, every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today. It's virtually impossible not to see here a veiled reference to David. Basically, what David is saying is, the Lord helping me, I, I have done the right thing today. After all, he wrote the poem, Psalm 11, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. He writes Psalm 89, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The Lord gave you into my hand today. And then he says, And I look to the Lord, verse 24, to deliver me out of all tribulation. Psalm 31 again, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. That's Psalm 31. David actually believes this. And yet, even with this affirmation, and even in light of Saul's benediction, if we can refer to it in that way, well then, Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son, David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And then it says, And so, David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. It's the last encounter between the two of them. This is the end. That's an important note, right? Something that uh, if you didn't look further into it, you didn't read, read any further through, that you might miss. But it's a very important point within the narrative of what we're looking at, and that's why he draws it out. Um, because this is, in effect, if you were just to read this section that we read without looking at the totality of what has happened— um, you would miss not only the importance and weight of this moment, but you would also miss the importance and weight of the fact that this is the last time they talk, because uh, that's a big deal. They've known each other for a very long time. They've had a very remote, uh, I can't say the word, they've had a very troubled relationship, okay? Um, so the fact that this is the last time they talk is a big deal, and that's why he draws it out, and that's why it's very important um, within just understanding the narrative of what's going on. You might go, well, why do you have to stop the video for that? Well, I want you to see even the smallest details that he's bringing out here within this type of preaching are important. Um, as I mentioned before, you've not heard him once say, you are like this, or this is like our situation, or this is this is how you know we can relate to this, because that's he, he's, he's preaching through the text, and guess what? The text isn't about us. It wasn't written about us. Now, we can learn from it. He's about to get into a very powerful ending to this sermon, but it's a powerful ending because of what we've learned by looking at the text. So let's get into that of their dialogue. And as we end, it's important that we recognize something, vitally recognize something. The righteousness and the faithfulness that has been displayed in the actions of David is actually going to crumble quite dramatically in chapter 27, then, and eventually, when we get to 2 Samuel in chapter 11, if we ever do, all of his righteousness and his faithfulness crumbles in the face of a bathing beauty. So what are we to understand in this? Well, we understand a number of things. One is that David is not the hero of the story. No more than Daniel is, no more than Joseph is. God is the hero always. We're to recognize this, that these kings— 
Okay, first of all, that's the first point. So we're just going to stop it after every point. One, David's not the hero, right? Joseph's not the hero. Daniel's not the hero. God is always the hero. What? Yes, that's right. You heard him say it correctly. This is the difference between exegetical precinct and eisegesis, right? If you're reading yourself into the text, you at some point are the purpose, the point, the, the main thing. Even if God is mentioned, God's usually the one helping you out, giving you the things, the opportunities, da 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 da, da, da right? God is always the hero in the story. This is what he's drawing out here specifically with David, right? David seems like a really upright guy. David seems like a really righteous guy. He could have killed Saul not only in this narrative, like where he had it. This is actually the second time he could have killed Saul, and he doesn't do it. So David seems really righteous here. His character seems really high, but he fails later. So he's not the hero. God's the hero of the story. He'll actually go on to say that here in a minute, but uh, he's going to talk about righteousness. But that's the first thing to remember about any of these narratives, no matter how righteous or good or amazing these people were, they weren't the, they weren't the, they weren't the hero. They always fell. So what does that mean for us? Well, he's about to get into that point too. No matter how good they were, we're eventually going to come to a, a halt. And there would be a longing for another king who would come. That king, when he came, would come in the unfolding of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the Lord. Now, where is this king? Well, Jesus stands on the waters of the Jordan, and John the Baptist says to him, Jesus. I think that you should Jesus. be baptizing me rather than me baptizing you. And what does Jesus say? Thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. You see, the story of the Bible makes perfectly clear that none of us is righteous no, not one. That if we were left to try and produce a righteousness and a faithfulness of our own, it would be a disaster. But the story of the Bible is that by the grace of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is granted to those who are united to Christ by faith. Our time is gone, but let me just drive this home, if I may, by pointing you just to one section of Romans chapter 3. And All right, so he's about to, in the sermon, point to it. I want to stop it there real quick, because the second point was, no matter how, you know, I mean, we can see uh, we can see all the heroes of the Bible, right? Specifically, in this case, he's talking about the Old Testament, all the heroes of the Old Testament, and how they seemed righteous, but they always failed. And, uh, and we no matter how hard we try, are not going to be righteous, just like they couldn't be righteous. So who's the one that can be our righteousness? Jesus. So what does this chunk of Scripture tell us? Well, it tells us a bunch about David and Saul, about everything that was happening and all the details of that situation that made it so real. And um, we can see how God is working in that situation as he's worked in other situations in the past. And we can see David seeming to be like the righteous one. But what do we know about David is that even in this situation, though he appears to be righteous, even though he did the right thing, he was not going to do the right thing later. 
And that righteousness, he can't hold his own righteousness up, just like we can't hold our own righteousness up. So what can we uh, learn and apply from this story of Saul and David? Is that no matter which person, whether whether we, 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 we are uh, appearing to be righteous or we're not righteous at all, regardless of what it is, uh, we need Jesus. And he's going to end here tying that all up in a bow for us, connecting it together. You can ponder this on your own as the day unfolds. Um, Paul has been writing about how the whole world is accountable before God, and that by works of the law, by our endeavors, none of us will be justified in his sight, because the more we realize how the law of God unfolds, the more we're conscious of our sin. So, is it a hopeless situation? No. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That's what we were singing about. The wrath of God is satisfied to be received by faith. To be received by faith. I went to an event this week you had to have an armband, a wristband. If you didn't have a wristband, you couldn't go in. How do you get the wristband? What do you have to do? Do you have to be a certain kind of person? Do you have to have a certain amount of money? What do you have to do? Well, mercifully, I didn't meet any of the requirements at all. I was able to get a wristband because of what someone else had done for me. Paul Simon has a song actually called Wristband. It's on a Stranger to Stranger album, and it's based on the, the fact that as the performer, he walks out of the building that he's going to perform in, and the door locks behind him. And when he tries to get back in, uh, the man at the door says, uh, you can't get back in without a wristband. I don't care who you are. And some people have got the idea that somehow or another, if we can only produce the correct wristband, uh, if we can only buy our uh, perfect lives or by our honest endeavors, uh, we'll be able to get in through the door. When the question is asked, what are you doing here? What are you going to say? When they say to you, where's your wristband? What are you going to say? I was a pastor. I was a good person. I tried my best. I was… No. The only answer is to be able to say, not simply, I'm with Him, i.e., Jesus, who is our perfect righteousness, but actually, I'm in him, united by grace through faith, all who believe. So, the story of David, in all of his wonders and in all of his imperfections, as with the rest of the Bible, points us inevitably and wonderfully to the one who is the king who will come and reign in your heart and in your life as you turn to him in repentance and in faith. All right, so he ends here in prayer. We're not going to listen to the prayer, um, but um, I hope you see the connection here that he's making between David, uh, David's apparent righteousness, but eventually non-righteousness. Uh, they can't live up to it. The same with us, that we cannot live up 
uh, and have our own righteousness. It is only Jesus that has that righteousness, not only for David, but for us as well. And that is only on that righteousness that we are able to uh, come before the Father. It's the only with that righteousness are we able to say we have anything because we are not able to produce it. We would make the exact same decisions as David would. We would make the exact same mistakes David would, and we have. And what he's building out of this narrative that we just read was that no matter how apparent David's righteousness seems to be, um, he's not righteous, and he needs uh, Jesus. And the fact that Saul and David both were kings, but both did not live up to uh, the kingship. We need a better king. It points to uh, the need for a better king, and that better king is Jesus. So I'm hopeful uh, that this uh, series is helpful. We're going to do this each month. We're going to uh, do just like what we did this month. We're going to pick one sermon that does exegetical work, what I would consider very poorly, and we'll look at that sermon. Then we'll have a sermon that's kind of an in-between sermon. And then the third sermon that we review next month will be a sermon like this one, which is an exegetical sermon walking, walking through the scripture and showing uh, what to look for, what to pull out, uh, what should be emphasized and what should not be emphasized. Uh, I'm hoping this is helpful. This is the third uh, video in this month's series. So hopefully you'll go back. I know they're all very long. I understand that. Um, I don't really see a way around that, but I hope that they are helpful. If you actually sit down and take the time, maybe just listen to them. You don't necessarily even have to watch them, uh, but listen to them so you can see kind of the the differences in approach when we're approaching things from an exegetical standpoint versus when when truthfully, you know, some pastors aren't doing that and the difference between as far as what happens when you don't and what happens when you do. So thank you guys for watching. Thank you for subscribing. And if you feel like leaving a comment or sending a message, I love that communication because I'm looking to learn as well. So uh, thank you for watching. I'll talk to you later.